Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Encero, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Vaccine hesitancy in the United States presents itself in different ways and forms, ranging from outright refusal in conservative rural areas to fears in communities of color to skepticism elsewhere. On today's episode of Managed Carecast, Dr. Patricia Salber of The Doctor Weighs In has a conversation with Abner Mason, the founder and CEO of Conce Hosano, a patient engagement firm working with diverse, multicultural, multilingual populations through at-risk providers, health plans, government programs, employers, and other partners. The two discuss the importance of relationship building and trust building, and understanding where people are coming from when they have the opinions and beliefs that they hold. They also discuss the role of health plans in COVID-19 vaccinations and how payers and partners can work on upstream issues to address other care gaps. This is Pat Salver, and um, this is my podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. And I'm really excited to have a guest today, Abner Mason, who I've known for, well, I think from the early days of his company, Consejo Sano. It's a very interesting company that uh, is engaging, helping companies, their clients to engage in care engagement and care navigation solutions for people who are from multicultural populations. And this is an issue that's really important now particularly in the age of COVID, when we're all aware of the fact that there's a difference in the acceptance of the COVID vaccination, depending on you know, what community you come from. And that makes sense because we're all influenced by our uh, communities, but some of the issues around communities of color are, are, are particularly important. And I think require a real special focus on how we address them. And Abner is actually an expert in this. In fact, he wrote a story for my healthcare site called Addressing Vaccine Hesitancy in Communities of Color. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. So Abner, welcome. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Pat. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having me uh, on the podcast. Good. So did I get your intro right? There's nothing I left out outside of the thousands of other things that you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I think you got it right. You know, we are, uh, Conseo Sano is a, is a patient and health plan member engagement uh, company. And we're helping, as you said, our, 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 our clients who are typically, uh, you know, health plans. Most of our clients uh, are health plans, particularly in the Medicaid space, but also increasingly in Medicare Advantage and in exchange and commercial. But our biggest footprint is in today is in, in Medicaid. And we're helping those clients to engage their uh, hard to reach, uh, low health literacy, low income, uh, undocumented uh, uh, members. That's, that's typically how we get called in because that's our specialty. That's our our, our, our sweet spot, those hard to reach members. But one thing that may have changed since I was last with you, Pat, is that, you know, as we've worked now with more and more health plans, they've said to us, uh, we love what Conceo Sano is doing for our hard to reach members, but frankly, we need this across our whole member population. So we actually engage all members now. Uh, to, yes, you know, black and brown people who for cultural 
cultural and linguistic reasons often are hard to, to engage. But we also uh, work with, uh, with white you know, traditional English speaking members um, because our approach, which is to understand who people are at a deeper cultural level and, to, and then to en uh, engage with them uh, at that level with a more customized, personalized approach works for everybody. Basically, if you treat people like who they are matters, if you take the time to figure out how to do that, and, and that's what we do at Conseil Sano, and I'm happy to talk about that, but the, 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 you know, there's a lot of technology, a lot of work behind the scenes, behind the, behind the curtain, but what it really comes down to is people uh, have a life story. They have a life journey. They have an experience. Uh, they, ha they, they, they have their own beliefs about the healthcare system. Uh, some of them are true. Some of them are false. <laughs> they have their own beliefs about the COVID vaccine, for example. Some of them are true. Some of them are false. Uh, we've got to personalize our, our, our engagement with, with, with healthcare consumers, I'll call them, whether they're a health plan member or a patient. Uh, we've got to start to treat them like who they are matters. One size does not fit all. And today, the way healthcare works it's still kind of one size fits all. They might translate a message, but it's still the same basic message written usually by English speakers for English speakers. They then translate it, usually not well, across you know, very many languages because they're required to by the state or other regulators. Um, but that approach, it's still one size fits all. And it's just not going to cut it in 2021 when people are used to being treated much better in other parts of the economy. If you go to Amazon and buy a pair of shoes, I guarantee you, Pat, if you and I go on to buy a pair of shoes or a couch, they're gonna, they're gonna have different suggestions for you than me because they've over time gotten to know what we like. If you have Netflix- they, Well, wait, let's, let's be honest, Abner, they've been spying on us. There you go, right. Yeah, they've been right. spying on us. So they exactly. know exactly what we've been looking for and they dish it up. They dish it up even when you're not asking for it. But that customized approach is, is, is really important. And that's what people expect. They expect to be treated better. They don't want to be treated. They don't want uh, healthcare to treat you, Pat, and me the same. We have different life journeys. We have different experiences. And as long as we uh, pretend that none of that's important, all the things that make you who you are, we say that's not important, we're never going to build the trusted relationships we, we need to build. So healthcare needs to catch up with the rest of the economy and start to personalize. And that's what we're doing at Conseil Sano. Well, you know, that's fantastic. And I think we can um, learn more about your approaches by focusing specifically on, on vaccine hesitancy because I think the things you tell us about your approaches are gonna to apply to other problems as well. And we'll talk about that at the end. But um, so I thought what I'd ask you first is, um, can you talk to us about the different drivers of hesitancy in communities of color? Um, because again, it's not one size fits all. There can be uh, you know, a black patient who's hesitant for one reason and you know, another community that's hesitant for another reason. So help us understand what some of these drivers are and then um, how they might vary between different cultures or communities and even within communities. Sure. So uh, uh, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head that uh, people are different and that uh, hesitancy uh, around the COVID vaccine, we're definitely seeing it in communities of color, but it's not just communities of color. There are uh, uh, conservative, rural, white, uh, 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 communities uh, that have even higher <laughs> vaccine uh, hesitancy rates than, than some communities of color. And so I, I think the, the key point to make here is that number one, uh, people are different and we're going to have to figure out, uh, take the time to figure out what it is that is causing a person 
uh, to uh, be in one of three buckets, and, and I, I'll call it buckets to make it simple. There's in bucket number one are people who want the vaccine. They'll stand in line for it. They'll go drive, you know, two hours to get it. They want it and they are eager to get it. That's bucket one. Bucket two are people who they are not ready to get the vaccine today. They're not a hard no, but they're not a hard yes. They've got concerns. They've got questions that need to be answered, and they fall in bucket two. And then bucket three are people who today are hard no. And what we've seen so far a couple things is that, you know, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm and I, I think it's fantastic because there was a mismatch between supply and demand. There was very little vaccine in the first quarter and there was a lot of people from bucket one who wanted to get the vaccine. So you had lines and yeah, you had people upset and you had people, you know, driving two hours to go get it and people doing anything they could to go get the vaccine. And that's great. And I'm glad those people are, are eager to get it. And we've, I think we've largely solved the supply problem uh, that we had on the vaccine side. We seem to be getting into a place where there's sufficient vaccine available. But what's interesting is we've kind of moved through most of bucket one and we're kind of now at a point where uh, we are starting to have to engage those folks in bucket two and bucket three who aren't ready to get it. And so you'll see, you know, vaccine uh, distribution sites uh, are closing. Uh, they are shortening their hours. Uh, people aren't coming. So, so we, uh, we, we've known this all along that we were going to run into this problem. What I think is unfortunate is that we just didn't prepare for it like we should. And when I say prepare for it, the key thing that we need to do is to figure out what makes a person uh, fit into bucket one. What is it that causes that person to say, I'm not ready to get the vaccine? And that, that is different for different people. If you, and it's different in, diff, in the same community. You can find people who uh, have different reasons for being in, bu in bucket number two. They're not ready. They're not a hard no, but they're not a, a, uh, a yes. And what we have not done a good job of doing at all, I think, is a very simple thing, asking people why, um, their, what their concerns are. What, what, and this is, you can't do it one way. And most of what we've done today is one way education engagement. We've, we've used the media and we use, uh, you know, uh, there's advertising campaigns and other, other types of efforts. And I, I applaud those, we need them. So nothing I'm saying is criticizing what's happening. What I'm saying is we're not doing enough. We got to move to that next level and say, why is it that you, Pat, let's assume you're in bucket, bucket number two, what, what are your concerns? And then give you a chance to tell us because your concerns are different than someone else's. You need to be able to have a two, we need to be able to have a two-way conversation and that is not happening in America today. And this doesn't even address the folks in bucket number three who are hard no. We definitely need to engage them and, and ask why they are hard no and have the same two-way conversation. Um, that's not happening today. Uh, and, and I think we need to see that happening. And, and unfortunately, the way the the, uh, the vaccine was rolled out by the last administration. This is a, a thing that I find really bizarre. They did not include in their rollout effort what I think could have been a major ally in helping to figure some of this out. And that's the health plans, the managed care plans. And I'll use Medicaid as, as an example. I was talking to Medicaid uh, managed care plans across the country in the first quarter, in January, in February, and March, and saying, what are you doing? And they, they said, well, we haven't been asked to do anything. We're not included. Uh, the, the, the previous administration had sort of laid out an approach 
that basically, you know, shipped the vaccine to the state and 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 dropped it off at the border right. and said, "State, you like, figure it out." Kind of like the testing and the PPE and everything. Yeah, else. it was yeah. it was not very well organized, so they didn't do a good job of including, you know, the the managed care plans. And 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 then when the new administration came in, they've done a better job, but they've been slow uh, to include uh, players that I think could really help. I do the kind of work I'm talking about, that two-way engagement. Uh, everybody doesn't love their health plan, but they the health plan knows who they are. They've had some interaction before. When you use just the public uh, health uh, authorities, two things. One, our public health infrastructure has we've had disinvestment for the last 30, you know, three or four decades. They aren't equipped to do the kind of outreach I'm talking about. When I say, what I'm talking about is customized individualized outreach to say to a person, what are you thinking? And how can we answer your questions? And then you ask and we get into a, into a conversation. Public health agencies don't have the finances or the infrastructure to do that. Health plans, if they want to, do. And that's why it's been so unfortunate that the managed care plans, particularly in Medicaid, because I care a lot about low-income people and people of color, that they weren't brought in early enough. Uh, that The current administration has finally brought in, start to bring in plans, which I think is great. They focused it on the 65 and older, which is nothing wrong with that. But we need to do what they're doing at 65 and older. We need to do that across the, all the ages. The health plans, both Medicaid and commercial and Medicare Advantage, they need to jump in here because this is where they can play the role of having a much more individualized uh, a customized approach. Now, the plans aren't perfect. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're perfect, but there's nobody better positioned than they are to talk to their members and to ask their members, what's going on in, in your head, member? You know, what are you thinking? And, and then how can we answer your questions and get into that kind of two-way conversation? So this is really interesting, Abner, because I have to say, I haven't heard anybody um, bringing in the health plans as a part of the solution to all of this. And I spent my whole career working in health plans or around health plans. I think some people would ask you, so Abner, why would we engage the health plans? Wouldn't the doctors be better people to have this conversation with their patients? I, I think that uh, the health plans are in a kind of interesting position because uh, they have great relationships with the doctors, with the providers. The health plans build the network that a, that a member goes to, right? So the health plans know the doctors. So I think you're 100% right. Maybe a health plan might want to get involved and say, we're going to work with our providers um, and we're going to uh, provide the providers with the funding because this is not free. You know, this, this is work um, and, and the resources and the tools to help the provider uh, to reach out to their patients. So I, I think you're absolutely right. But the, the, the reason I focus on the, on the plans is, you know, let's face it, they have the money. Uh, provider they groups, have the money, the right. don't have the, they, they don't have the money or, the, uh, or a lot of times the infrastructure. Uh, the plans, they have the funding to do this and they have the infrastructure to do it. There's an old joke that they asked the bank robber why he robbed banks. He said, because that's where the money is. That's what. Yeah, so, no, exactly. The, so I'm not saying that I 100% agree with you that providers need to be a part of this. But we can't say to provider groups, you've got to figure out how to communicate with your patients, all of them, and you've got to figure out how to get the, the content 
culturally and linguistically appropriate. Uh, you've got to do two ways. You've got to have, because this is not one way. You've got to engage in the conversation. You've got to hire additional staff to have those conversations. Provider groups don't have that, that capacity on their own, but in partnership with the plans, they could do it. So I, I agree 100%. We need everybody in this boat rowing. And so we need the providers and the plans, but the plans bring something that you really need, which is resources and, and infrastructure. Yeah, they bring, that's what, you know, we need yeah. them. So, so this is really interesting because I, I think that the, um, what you're describing here, once, if, if it's honed, you know, once it's, it's like that, like that just rolling along would be so beneficial way beyond COVID. But before we go there, and I do want to come back and go there, um, you mentioned that you have technology and you know, you've, you've built up the ability to do this. Tell us a little bit about what it takes to be able to do this. Cause I'm assuming it isn't just a bunch of nurses or you know, health educators on the telephone asking all these questions that, because that would be pretty labor intense. What, what, what have you done to make this um, run smoothly? So yeah, so it, uh, thanks for asking. And at Consejo Sano, uh, we built a solution which uh, we, we're very proud of and, and we've been deploying it even before COVID uh, to uh, engage uh, uh, members to close gaps in care. So to get people to come in for breast cancer screenings and colorectal cancer screenings and well child visits and immunizations for kids. So we were doing this kind of outreach on behalf of our health plan and provider clients before COVID. And what we have specialized in is, is, is we built a technology platform that allows us to ingest a, a lot of data, public data, private data, claims data. We add to that a team we built that is very diverse, that comes from the communities we're trying to, uh, to uh, uh, engage people, where we're trying to engage people. And our technology platform allows us to ingest that data and to to uh, take a larger member population and divide it up into smaller groups that we call cultural cohorts. And then we design the content for the cohort. So we're never translating. We're never treating uh, one Spanish speaker whose who's, who's country of origin might be Mexico, the same as we would speak another Spanish speaker who might be from Puerto Rico. They both speak Spanish, but you know what? They, they are completely different in their, in, in their life journey, in their experience, uh, in, how, in their, uh, how they engage in healthcare. Uh, and so by creating these cultural cohorts and designing the content for the cohort and then delivering that content in the way that the member prefers, what we're doing is creating a more personalized, customized experience, but we're able to do it at scale. Um, so we, you know, we, today, Conseil Sana, we have contracts with the largest, five of the largest uh, health plans by, you know, by market share in the country. And, and, and in addition to that, lots of other national plans and, and, uh, and state uh, health plans, as well as providers and health systems. So we are, you know, we're active in about 25 states and, and, and growing. We have figured out how to do this. And we were helping our clients do this before COVID. Well, COVID comes along and we have to shift uh, the content of the message is no longer about getting someone to come into the clinic. Um, first, it was about educating them about how to stay safe, then educating them about how to use telehealth and virtual health. We, we generated 50, 60,000 uh, virtual visits in the first uh, three or four months of, of COVID. And this was with low income uh, FQHC, uh, federally qualified health center patients. So these are low income, low health literacy, multicultural. They hadn't used virtual visits before, but we were able to, uh, to do it because we were connecting with them culturally and in a more personalized way. So it's, the, it's, it's using technology to do the mic, the, the, the cultural cohorting, and then to send out the message. And, and this is important. 
uh, to receive messages back. It can't be one way. If you, if you and I will have a very bad relationship, if I do all the talking and you never get to say anything or to ask a question or, or to engage me, that's not a, a very good relationship and it won't build the kind of trust we need to get people to do something like take a COVID vaccine. You gotta, whether we like it or not, we gotta listen to people and we gotta answer their questions and we gotta treat them that's like it. what they think is important and and today we're not doing nearly enough of that. And the and the and the you know public health infrastructure is asking too much. Um, anywhere in America you go, the public health infrastructure just isn't equipped to do that. And I'm but I know the health plans are if they want to. Now they don't always do it, uh, but if they want to, because we've got many clients who've decided to do this, they have the they have the the resources and the infrastructure to have that kind of two way conversation with their members, and that's what we need. So I agree. I, for years, I've, I've said that, you know, pretty, particularly plans with what we used to call disease management programs, we're really doing private sector public health, right? I mean, right. They, they have the ability to do that. And as you said, we've eroded our public health system, which I hope we start yeah. to turn around. Um, so I have a question about, about the two-way communication. Are you communicating in a variety of modalities? Is it mainly asynchronous text and email? Are you including... Um, telephone calls? I mean, what kind of variety of communication vehicles are you using? So our, our, our overall approach is to prioritize the preference of that health plan member or that patient. So we think that we should communicate with the plan member or the patient in the way they prefer. And if you ask them uh, anywhere in America, any income group, <laughs> if you ask people how they prefer to communicate, they will tell you by nine to one, nine, you know, nine out of ten, they'll say asynchronous text messaging, meaning you know a text message that they can read now and respond to later. Um, if you ask them to compare text messaging to to email, text messaging wins. If you say text messaging to, to snail mail, the US Postal Service, they'll say, <laughs> they'll say text messaging. Even calls, most people don't take call. If you, I don't know if you answer calls that you don't know, but most people I don't. today in America don't answer phone calls. Uh, they overwhelmingly, they say, you know, text messaging or uh, particularly asynchronous two-way text messaging. So that's what we prefer. Now, here's a, here's a problem though. In America today, most health plans are constrained in their ability to engage using text messaging because of regulatory, you know, legal reasons. There's an old law, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act passed in 1992, that's still the federal law, and it prevents or really constrains what plans can do to engage their members. Now, during COVID, they, they issued emergency declarations. So for the first time, plans were able to, to waive the, the, uh, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act constraints, and we were able to do a lot of text messaging. But here's what's sad, uh, as the emergency uh, uh, regulations are sunsetted, we're back to the old way of not being able to engage the way the, the member prefers. So they prefer text messaging, but we also have a a group of care coordinators, we call them uh, basically a call center, but these are these are people who co they, they cover uh, 30 different cultures and languages <clears throat> so that if a member or a person does want to uh, have a call and uh, uh, we can do that, or if we escalate from a text message, sometimes we, we have text back and forth and there's a need to escalate to a real person because sometimes, <clears throat> you know, you need to talk to a real person. And so we have that. Um, well, so that's really interesting. Um, so does it work? Do, it works. Do you have metrics that show us that we, it the results are are just astounding. I was just looking at some data, you know, with one uh, 
uh, health plan as a Medicaid plan, a managed care plan in Southern California, we were able to increase the uh, well child visits by 47%. And this was after they had tried everything in their arsenal to try to get these parents to bring those kids in for a well child visit. Uh, but they were using the old approach. It's, you know, it wasn't linguistically appropriate. It wasn't culturally appropriate. They didn't take the time uh, to, to engage. So they hired us and we came in and, and increased uh, the uh, by, by 47% uh, well child visits. And another client in New England, we did a, a, an onboarding and retention. So how do you keep, you know, they want to keep <clears throat> members and the state was basically uh, doing something creative. They allowed the member a wide window, like three months to leave the plan from wow. the beginning of the year. And so it was, and if the, if the member stayed to day 91, the plan got the payment for the first 90 days and they were locked in for the rest of the year. So it was key to keep these members for the first 90 days. But this was the state's way of saying, Medicaid plans, you need to do better. You've got to treat your members better and we're going to let them vote with their feet. If you don't treat them right, they can go. And so this plan reached out to us and said, we got to, from day one, start to treat our Medicaid members uh, like they matter, like like <laughs> a much uh, 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 more customized, you know, experience. And so we 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 were able to uh, to significantly improve their their member retention by about twenty percent, um, which which for them resulted into like one one point two million in top line revenue in six months. This is we tried it for six months and we got those results that were so strong. Now we're doing more of it, um, but it does work. It basically. And what about for people, vaccines? Do you have any data that show your making a dent in the vaccine hesitancy. We will have more data soon. We just signed two large health plan clients. Um, and here, and this is what makes me sad, to be honest. It's April 29th, I think. <laughs> and we're just now starting to do serious vaccine work with our, with our health plan clients. And well, you know, April I think actually the timing, I, and I, I don't work in this intimately, but you know, watching what I hear about the vaccine rollout, now is the time, you know, we, we've, we've gone through your bucket one, all of us that, you know, I, I drove like three hours away to get my vaccine. Right. And so all of us are pretty much, not but, all of us, but a lot of us are vaccinated. And now that, and right now we have the bandwidth and the vaccine and the resources to be able to try and flip these other people yeah. out of two and maybe even your bucket three. Bucket three. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you know, dwell too much on this point, but it takes a while to build a relationship. So if, I, if we want to engage a member population that are in bucket two, and it's April 29th, and we're starting, that's, it would have been better for us to have started back in February, so that we could start to have that two-way conversation, because we got to first, you know, figure out which, we have to first assess their in bucket two, and then we need to build a little trust. And sometimes you can, people don't engage with you immediately. You have to actually, uh, and we've learned this at Conseil San is one of the ways that we're successful. Sometimes you have to offer the person something before you ask them something. So for example, if we know that there's high food insecurity in a given area where our member population we're trying to reach to get them to come in for the vaccine is, maybe we don't start with asking them to come in for the vaccine because we know they're in bucket two. They, they got concerns or, or they're in bucket three. It just doesn't, it's not always the smartest to say, I want to talk to you about a vaccine. <laughs> it may be smarter to say, I know there's food insecurity in your area and not everyone, maybe you or people you love or know aren't signed up for, for instance, SNAP, the Supplemental Food you know, Assistance Program, Nutrition Assistance Program. So 
we'd love to educate you about SNAP and even give you some links to sign up that you can share with, with someone who you know who might, might, might need this in these times. These are difficult times and there's a lot of food insecurity. That process of building trust and, and getting them educated about SNAP or connecting them to SNAP, and you can see how there are many other examples of this. It could be housing insecurity. It could be all sorts of things. That builds the trust that then allows you to segue into, and by the way, uh, let's, can we talk to you about the vaccine? We, so if... It's, it's psychological that humans don't, we don't like it when someone comes to us and the first thing they want to talk about is something that's important to them and that we, that may not be our top priority. And so uh, right. one of our like approaches is to- something. Exactly, yeah. right. And we're sold and, stuff all, the, all, all day exactly. long. Exactly, so, so offer something. for But all I'm saying is that takes time. And that's why we would love to have started in February, but you know, it's okay, we'll, we'll start now. We'll still you know, make progress. But that's why you need to build that trusted relationship. And this is, goes to your other point. That's why this COVID opportunity, we shouldn't let it go by to not build trusted relationships because we can then use those relationships to talk about a well child visit or breast cancer screening or, or you know, other things later on. When COVID is hopefully in the rearview mirror, we built a trusted relationship uh, with that member and then we can talk about other things and, and close other gaps in care. So uh, it is an opportunity uh, and I just hope we don't miss it. No, absolutely. So, so Abner, what I want to do is to close by asking you kind of a, a future question. Maybe you're already doing this, but we haven't talked about it yet. And that is going beyond vaccines and well-child visits and all this other kind of stuff, but it's actually addressing people's hesitancy around treatments that they're prescribed. And I think what happens with a lot of people, they, I mean, in here, you can have buckets too. You can have the ones that take whatever was prescribed because you know, the doctor told them to do it and they always do what the doctor told them to do it. And then there are people, um, I'm one of them, who, <laughs> who want to really understand it. And I want to understand how it, what you recommended fits in, into my life and my preferences and my goals for what I'm being treated for. Um, and I need to have that discussion. But, you know, a lot of times uh, clinicians really aren't comfortable with that because they're more used to, and I know that because I, I trained in that era where, hey, I came up with the answer and this is it. And there you go. And by the way, if you don't do what I said, you're non-compliant. I know we don't use that word anymore publicly, but that's what we call them. And then there's, there may be people in bucket three who <clears throat> they, they, you know, they, they're just going to do alternative medicine. They just, no matter what you do, they're not going to do Western medicine, whatever. So my question to you is, is this on your radar screen? And maybe you start with something, maybe it's, maybe treatment compliance is too big. Maybe it's, medication, non-adherence or whatever word we're, we're using now for that. But is that on, on your radar screen, screen trying to understand why people refuse to get every other things that may that we believe may be in their uh, best health interests? Sure, it's absolutely something that we are focused on now. Um, we are doing medication adherence uh, campaigns with, with clients now. Um, so it's definitely something that, that we are really interested in. And, and we're doing and we're going to do more of. And one of the ways, and I know this is going to sound like it doesn't connect, but we believe it does. One of the things we're doing is, is really pushing to address upstream issues in, in that patient's life. So non-clinical issues, they call them social determinants of health is the, big is the term that we use now. Um, a lot of times there's a connection between 
non-adherence uh, and other factors in a person's life. And if you can stabilize, so, you know, if, if a person is, is homeless or about to be homeless, is worried about their, where they're going to, you know, live or their kids are going to have a roof over their head, it's hard to, to be compliant. If they've got food insecurity, if they, uh, there's all sorts of things that happen in people's lives that, that make the adhe adhering to the drug regimen uh, not as high a priority. Um, and so part of what we think is not the whole answer, but part of the answer is doing a better job of, again, addressing the factors in a person's life that cause some of the, the instability that leads to, and it's connected to in lack, of, lack of adherence to a, a drug regimen or a therapy of any sorts. And so we really are interested in uh, clients helping working with clients who want to invest further upstream so we're doing SDOH surveys social determinant of health surveys we just uh, have a announced a partnership with RWJ Barnabas Health System it's the largest health system in New Jersey where we'll be uh, surveying their patients but doing it in a culturally customized way it's hard to talk about these issues people just don't come and tell you I don't have food to feed my kids or I'm about to be put out because there's self-esteem and there's shame and there's all these other factors that and we all have it uh, this is what it means to be human and so you need to build that trusted relationship so someone will tell you, I don't have rent this month and I'm low income. So my rent isn't that high. $300 will keep me in my house or in my apartment. Um, but they frequently will end up getting put out. And then it's a bigger problem to solve because they're homeless. And there's all sorts of issues that go with that. And, and homeless people aren't compliant <laughs> with their rent. With Right. with their you know, drug regimen. And so uh, I think that as we do a better job of investing upstream, and that's what I love RJ, RWD Barnabas is doing, it's going to be helpful to us. But let me just say too, that the this ability to invest upstream, to, to, to spend money on, on rent, for instance, to keep a person from being homeless, or, to, or on food to keep, so they have you know, uh, uh, food and that's nutritious, the Medicare Advantage program has been given an enormous amount of flexibility so that those plans can use premium dollars to invest in these upstream, you know, sort of SDOH issues. The shame is that it's not happening in Medicaid. So we need to take what we know works and what we know is needed and it's working now in the Medicare Advantage program and they're doing more of it. They're actually, you know, they're, they're moving more in that direction. Uh, and we need to say, just because people are lower income, it's the, this is the, you know, Medicaid, they should be, we should be able to take advantage of some of these uh, new learnings that we know really, really work. And so um, I'm really pushing and encouraging us to, uh, to, to invest upstream uh, in the Medicaid program uh, because if we do that, you're going, it's going to have a profound effect on, on, on drug adherence and, 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 and uh, it solves a whole host of problems, not just drug adherence, but it also addresses that problem. But, yeah, we need, but, but we're not doing it today. You know, the I, Medicaid totally, advantage, you know. Yeah, I'm totally with you, Abner. I think, I think that this is, this is when we talk about holistic approaches. Exactly. This is right. the holistic approach. The fact that we siloed things like nutrition, you, right. you know what I mean? Like all these things got, so, well, that's not right. really healthcare, you know, that's not really, but now we know all of that stuff is healthcare. So I'm really delighted to have this conversation with you and to hear the direction that you're going and particularly that you're um, working with health plans to do that. So I, I believe that our audience at the American Journal of Managed Care is gonna be perfect uh, to hear your message. And, um, and I'd love for us to be able to touch base again and just stay in touch so we can uh, watch as you um, evolve and, 
and solve some really prickly problems in healthcare. So thank Thanks. you very much, Abner. Yeah, and thank you, Pat. You're one of the first uh, people who ever wanted to interview me way back when, because you you had a had a heart for what we were doing, and I really appreciate it. And so I haven't forgotten. So thank you for uh, being willing to talk to me when nobody else would <laughs> way back then. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 